Hi, I'm Yves In this episode of Modern Law, we discuss the transformation of our courts using technology. You're listening to Modern Law, presented by the Canadian Bar Association's National Magazine. It's October 12th, 2022. Now, COVID-19 isn't dead and gone by any means, but a semblance of normality has returned. And yet, much about our justice system has changed, permanently perhaps, forced as it was to quickly adopt technology during the pandemic. A return to in-person hearings is certainly underway, and this is especially true for the most complex cases, but the flexibility of virtual hearings are also likely to remain to some extent a permanent fixture of our court proceedings. And there's more. Plans are afoot in several courts to improve electronic filing. Courts in several jurisdictions around the world are looking at how they can put data analytics and AI to work to maximize the use of data and modernize and automate processes. But as a report by the CBA Task Force on Justice Issues Arising from COVID-19 cautioned last year, enthusiasm for technology must be balanced with sober thought about their implications for fair and accessible justice. The report, known as the No Turning Back Report, highlighted some 18 recommendations to guide the courts and justice stakeholders in realigning the justice system with the digital reality of our century. So we thought it would be a good time, some 18 months after the release of the report, to revisit some of what was discussed in it and take stock of what has changed and what the remaining challenges ahead are. So we invited Professor Karen Eltis, the contributing editor of the CBA No Turning Back Report, released back in February 2021. Eltis is a law professor at the University of Ottawa, and she specializes in artificial intelligence, innovation law and policy, and cybersecurity issues. She is also the author of Courts, Litigants, and the Digital Age. Thank you, Karen Eltis, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So, I mean, this is the second time we've had you on the show. I mean, the show uh, was uh, known as After the Pandemic uh, uh, two years ago, but now it's modern law, but uh, uh, no matter to that. We spoke a couple of years ago, um, and I think it was before the release of the report. Uh, We spoke a couple of years ago on the podcast, just uh, prior to the release, about the pressing need to modernize our courts, the risks involved, and the precautions we should be taking, you know, and I think there are a few takeaways from that discussion, and we saw those fleshed out in the report a little further. One of them was that uh, you were you were issuing a word of caution that you know we got to be careful about not swinging from one extreme to the next, where you know we have this justice system that has been very reluctant to embrace change, technological solutions. Um, even in the face of mounting backlogs and delay. And then the other extreme where uh, we are embracing technologies uh, in a manner that is a little bit careless, I suppose, and maybe sloppy without properly thinking through all of the unintended consequences of implementing tech. So just taking that general idea, how do you see that issue today? Has it evolved any or are the current concerns still the same? I think that's a really important question. And and I'd like to preface it just by saying that even though I think we were in what many have and myself has, have referred to as the fourth industrial revolution prior to COVID, the crisis of the pandemic and the related measures have moved us way into the futures, have 
created a migration of services online overnight, as we've said in the past, and have swept away this psychological resistance to digital transformation, which is wonderful. Mm -hmm. But in regards to the caution, crisis as catalyst for change is welcome. But I think when it comes to uh, this abrupt transition, we really haven't had a chance to think it through. It's funny that you mentioned the podcast being titled After the Pandemic, which clearly was premature. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and and some may may query with this now. But in any event... Uh, That's very, why we changed the name, by the way. Yes. But, but even at this stage, at the very least, we've had, I think, now a chance to take stock. And if we haven't, it is time to do that because we're out of the immediate crisis phase. And this, I think, requires us and us as a society and certainly as as institutions uh, to take stock, to really reflect on building on the change that the crisis occasioned and look at uh, whether, in fact, as you say, you've said, and I've said in the past, we've swung from one extreme to another. And if we have, what sort of tweaks we need to build in in order to ensure that we're not driven solely by efficacy, but that we're building trust, certainly with something as sensitive as the justice system. Is there an issue with trust now, two years after that last conversation? Is, is there a different issue with trust? I don't know if the if the issue is is different. I think it's a question of scale. And I think this is also something that we only see with, and I'm struggling for the English word with that, with 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 recul, with looking back. And and you might have the the, the proper word for me. A um, bit of hindsight. Hindsight. That is exactly it. So I think in terms of trust issues, that will only be able to be ascertained in a few years. Mm -hmm. Uh, Why? Similar to, I wrote Courts Litigants in the Digital Age. It was the first edition was published in 2012. So I must have written it, you know, somewhere around 2009, 2010, given the publication process. And only a decade later, uh, do many of us see the pertinence right, of the digital age on court? So it really takes a bit of hindsight. With regards to the specific issue of trust, I don't think we're in any type of crisis. But I think as the issues build up, and as there is a greater social interest, and we've seen this with Cambridge Analytica, Uh, We've seen this now with the rapid migration and and the pandemic. People are taking notice of the significant shift. And I think we have to be proactive about nurturing and maintaining trust rather than sort of going forward in a tactical rather than a strategic way at a point that we will inevitably encounter some sort of issues that might hinder trust and as, as justice needs to draw on what Easton has called the reservoir of goodwill, there is not much leeway in terms of of sacrificing trust for efficiency. So this is a time to take stock and reflect on how we can ensure that this revolution is sustainable. There's a lot of discussion today about the erosion of trust in our institutions in Canada. And when we're looking at the legal sector, the big issue is often access to justice. A lot of that has to do with the complexity of law and procedures and the delays. Some of it has to do with the whole weight of the system. But there are other issues as well in terms of trust that we're seeing play out in our economy. That might be sensitivity to the use of our data, where it goes, uh, who gets access to it. 
all of these things play into, I think, issues that our justice system is struggling with in terms of embracing technology. How do you see that? We need to be cautious. This is a time when resources are limited Mm -hmm. and technology provides a seemingly simple, inexpensive, and a very seductive solution. And while many aspects of technology, and I've clearly judging by the title of my book, have, have been pushing for technology to be to be adopted uh, in many respects, and I'm, I'm glad that the psychological barriers have fallen, technology is not a silver bullet for access to justice. And we have to be really careful, as the Talon Declaration has said, that as we, and you use the word embrace, as we, you know, cautiously embrace uh, technology, we uh, do so in a way that is open, efficient, and inclusive. And there are a few points, and these I can elaborate on later. The first point and is one of unmitigated or unquestioned dependence on private platforms, often platforms that come from outside of Canada, often platforms that clearly set themselves out as uh, being commercial platforms, which is completely fine. But that doesn't naturally create a fit for government and more specifically for justice, right? If if the business model is, is one of private platforms, do we want our interactions with the justice system to be entirely mediated by these commercial actors? And that's a question that I think we really need to ask ourselves in light of, of judicial independence very specifically and in light of trust more generally. And the second point, I recently presented a paper at the uh, International Conference for Pattern Recognition, which was AI conference. I was the only lawyer amongst many, many computer scientists conveniently in, in Montreal. And we talked about due process. And I spoke of research conducted decades ago by a professor of psychology and of, of law in Yale, Tom Tyler. And seemingly counterintuitively, his conclusions, I think, are brilliant for the AI context. And he said, you know, a system that's perceived as offering due process, so procedural justice and avenues for fair contestation, so fairness, is better heated, creates more trust than one that is efficient. And in fact, he's shown that people prefer fair procedures, even though they might be waiting for for results, even though they might lose in court. They want to understand that the procedures are fair. So this is where the concern with ultimate fallout that comes from either obscurity or abdication to non-justice actors comes to the forefront. And I I'll stop here, but I'm I'm happy to uh, elaborate on that. I mean, that's really interesting because, so I mean, really, what you're saying is that you know people are prepared to hang in there and wait out for a judicial solution on the premise that you know they will get due process, that the procedures will be fair, everyone will be treated fairly. I think the problem, though, is when they also fall through the cracks because of questions of cost, and they can't afford to hang in that long because of the complexities of the justice system. So I guess the question there is like, where can, where can technology or algorithms or artificial intelligence assist us in making the system more efficient where it should be without sacrificing those concerns about due process? You've just put your finger on what is the most important problem for the justice system that the majority of people are often left behind because of the prohibitive cost of justice. And this is a tremendous obstacle that I think we must 
acknowledge and address. And this was a, a problem long before uh, the pandemic, and, and it's one exacerbated by the pandemic for many reasons. The question is whether technology is the silver bullet or whether, and, and I, I pose this as a question in terms of leaving people behind, whether we are in fact not creating a two-tier system where those who have access to justice continue to have access to uh, justice that is characterized by fairness. And those who you mentioned who, who are increasingly, you know, a, a large majority of, of, of everyday people uh, don't have access to what we know as justice, but rather a, a poor substitute or a poor man's justice, which is a technological uh, substitute. So essentially steering, uh, are we uh, in so doing, steering everyday people away from the justice system that we've known and instead saying, well, we have technological solutions in place for you. Now, what I'm concerned about is that we do that in accordance with people's capacity to pay as opposed to with nature of disputes. I think AI and technology can absolutely help us. And we've seen this in BC with solving certain issues, very often, you know, small claims, or I've written a piece using a Nobel Prize, Daniel Kahneman's paradigm, Think Fast, Think Slow, where there is a simple rule to be applied in a straightforward manner that does not require a lot of judicial discretion. A technological system and an AI system can certainly step in to provide people with rapid resolution, but that would be according to the nature of, of dispute rather than the character of the litigant. Whereas when you have a tremendous deal of discretion at stake that the judge must apply, the technological solutions may not be as well suited. When you have self-represented litigants who need guidance, the technological solution may not. So uh, my concern, and this is just a concern that I want to flag, is kind of resisting or at least confronting or acknowledging the temptation to say that for many disputes, we're going to privatize and steer people away from the justice system that we've built towards quick fixes, not having properly sat down and reflected on the ramifications of that privatization for all intents and purposes and the quality of justice, ensuring that's not a two-tier. That's different from saying uh, we shouldn't steer cases that are simple to technology systems. And that may be a good way of looking at it because we're not going according to the ability to pay of the litigants, but rather we are looking at the nature of the dispute and some which may very well be handled by technology, again, ensuring that no one is left behind. There are tremendous accessibility issues that we're sometimes not alive to, of course. Now, you know, obviously the pandemic forced the judicial world into virtual hearings. I'm wondering from your discussions with people and those who have presided some of these hearings, have they been able to appreciate what's worked and what's not in terms of like what kind of hearings virtual hearings work for or you know, what kind of situations technology can assist are are they are they bringing that critical eye to the debate absolutely and i think uh, we've conducted and the report bears this out a triage for instance the care that must be taken with criminal law and the care that must be taken with older more vulnerable populations people with disabilities uh, and so on so i mentioned self-represented litigants so i think there's been a tremendous alertness to ensuring that the technology or to, to recognizing that technology is a, is a wonderful tool, not a crutch, not a panacea, 
And there's been great openness and, and reflection to that and seeing what areas of law technology might lend itself best to facilitating understanding of the law uh, for self-represented litigants and so on, uh, as opposed to uh, simply being imposed. I think there's been tremendous awareness uh, and ensuring that technological standards are aligned with democratic values. Another issue has been one of concern, and I can come back to this, uh, not to standardize uh, justice too much, not to nudge it in a way towards conformity. There's been great awareness I think where we we still need to do work is the courtroom of the future, mm. because a court is is seen as a service now, not just a place. So when will we need physical courtrooms? How should these physical courtrooms be equipped? What should they look like? There's a recognition, and this is important as we look towards ODR and ADR, and there's been great sensitivity towards that, that the adversarial model is not always uh, the best model. And there, there's a lot of writing recently in the Globe and Mail about the shadow pandemic and domestic violence and other such issues where the adversarial model is not necessarily the best and where uh, certain forms of technology may be helpful in creating uh, community justice and other forms of justice in various contexts. I think there's been tremendous sensitivity and understanding that the family law context is a is a thorny one and kind of having, and this is something that there's still a, a lot of work to be done, uh, coming to a balance of, of we want access to justice and we want it to be efficient, but we also uh, want to ensure that the particularities of sensitive contexts are not uh, neglected. So definitely, there's been uh, tremendous sensitivity uh, and work done in that uh, in that arena. Is there an implication in there somehow that being present in court or going to court as a place is more inclined to produce adversarial situations? I don't know if if it's more inclined per se. I think that one thing that has been recognized is there is a ceremonial value to going to court, to physically, you know, getting one out of their pajamas and showing up in front of, of a judge. There's a solemnity that goes along with that. Now, the question is, as with everything else, equilibrium and trade-offs. So on the one hand, that solemnity is necessary in, in certain contexts. And law is not just about dispute resolution, especially in, in some areas, and one can think of criminal law, but it is society coming together for a particular uh, statement of sorts. In terms of adversarial, I don't know that the physical courtroom creates a more adversarial climate, but I think the physical courtroom has certain attributes that are traditional and classic, if you will, whereas mm -hmm. the digital form, and this is this is a, a lovely part of it that, that we should harness, uh, can create alternative modes, uh, right? So, so the flip side of, well, on the one hand, we want to have this ceremonial justice because that, you know, that has an important social value. The flip side of that is, is can we see uh, justice in a different light? And are there other beneficial ways that are perhaps less daunting that we can apply in other contexts that are more collaborative, uh, less adversarial, uh, less daunting that would allow people to have greater access, not just from a financial perspective, although that's probably the number one concern for people, but from a comfort level. So in answer to your question, I don't know that the physical courtroom makes it more adversarial, but it, it has traditional trappings for better or worse. And it, the digital has allowed us to explore alternatives 
to that that may work better in some areas and not as well in others. And that comes back to the question of triage, which is still relevant. Another way to explore alternatives is by looking elsewhere. And the No Turning Back report calls for judicial bodies across the country to collaborate and coordinate their efforts at adopting technology and sharing best practices. Um, How are they doing? There's an important balance to be struck. I think courts are doing very well in terms of judicial education. I'm happy to see the IOGT, International Organization of Judicial Training, which every two years uh, takes place somewhere around the world. This year, in a few weeks, we'll be here in well here in Ottawa, uh, Canada. So there's a lot of discussion. There's a lot of collaboration through various institutions. It's a balance between, on the one hand, uh, having some level of of harmonization so that one doesn't have a patchwork, and having conversations and seeing what's being done elsewhere. I think it's very important. But on the other hand, as I said, being cautious about overly streamlining in order to ensure that we comport with not only judicial independence, but with the imperatives of federalism and of local particularities and of individual courtrooms and their uh, specific needs. So kind of striking this correct balance between what are best practices, and I think that's very important, and the individual character of various courts. And I attracted attention to this in even in my first book, you know, over a decade ago, but certainly now, uh, very often for case management or court management, uh, there's standardization software that is being used and that we have to be careful of in terms of uh, judicial independence and overtracking judicial productivity. So streamlining is good to a certain extent, but also maintaining the particularities is helpful as well. And there's a comparative study that looks at, you know, the federal federal jurisdictions have done better than unitary states in some ways in, in striking that balance. But more generally, and, and we can come back to this, I think we can learn from foreign jurisdictions for what I identify as the major issue, which is dependence, as I've said, on uh, mediation by private commercial actors in this, not because of the actors themselves, but because this is a very public forum. And looking at who has developed platforms in-house, and there are uh, certain examples even for video conferencing, and looking at uh, what can be helpful for that, Uh, looking at protecting very fragile cyber infrastructure. We've seen recently with telecom, we've seen it in Australia, the cybersecurity issues. That's where uh, harmonization is very important, uh, as opposed to just individual court practices and the like. Are you saying that uh, the courts should be considering building some of these platforms in-house or should they be outsourcing them to private actors? Yeah, I, I, I think, and again, you know, this is this is a gargantuan task and very often we say, well, what's, what's appealing about platforms is that we can get them for free. But as I've always said, you know, there's no free lunch, right? We, we have to, uh, what's appealing is that it's, it's all ready for us. But convenience, you know, we have to think about the trade-offs for convenience and we have to think about the particularities of justice and the sensitivity and and we're talking about trust and we have to think not only about the short term we have to think about the sustainability and what the pandemic and the cyber revolution has done is that it collapsed boundaries between the brick and mortar world and numeric world but also between private and public we're at work but we're at home Uh, we're in court but we're at home and all of our interactions are mediated by commercial 
platforms. And we have to think about the implications of that injustice. So yes, I think that it's important and, and, and many will shy away from this because it's expensive and this is what we're trying to get away from. But this is why I say technology is helpful and we should be moving with technology, but prepackaged solutions in a crisis situation are of course more helpful than they are to use the name of the the previous name of the podcast after the pandemic when we take stock and say, you know, there are costs to ensuring that a system, again, especially when it comes to sensitive information, is properly vested with trust. Because, of course, now as we look into cybersecurity, justice is a treasure trove of information. And so this is something that we may not want to address right now, but that I think will very much need to be addressed. Perhaps the counter to that would be, well, or I don't know if it's a counter, but the concern, especially in a place like Ottawa, where where I think uh, public servants are still haunted by the the Phoenix nightmare. Yeah. Is, is, it really, is it really feasible to consider that the justice system and the courts could build platforms in-house? Presumably they would have to collaborate somehow with with outsiders, but if platforms are inefficient, making access to justice even more difficult than it was back in the analog times, uh, that's not going to help much the cause of improving access to justice and 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 restoring people's trust or earning people's trust in the in the justice system either. Yeah, I think that's a fair point, and I, I think there's a two pronged approach as we reflect on it. The first is the one that you correctly mentioned previously, which is international cooperation, mm-hmm. and when we talk about reinventing law for the digital age uh, more generally, right? Because we had private law and public law and data protection law, and none of these work in a straightforward manner post-digital revolution. We have to recognize that. And that's that's a tough fight to fight. And, and it took 100 years after what we commonly refer to the Industrial Revolution. And, and here's how it ties in. Before the pandemic, if I would have spoken of international treaties or initiatives, even more generally, it would have been laughable. Whereas now with cybersecurity and and for again, for good or ill, we can look and this is more generally at the Cloud Act and, and various like-minded uh, democratic countries putting our heads together and thinking, this is borderless, this is a global problem. Can we better address it together? And now coming back to the courts, we can think of various jurisdictions that are exploring these issues. So, so yes, going it in-house alone is extremely difficult and can be uh, counterintuitive, but looking at like-minded democratic countries exploring types of solutions together is another and perhaps a more modest because that would perhaps be something that that can be looked at in the long term but something more modest in the shorter term would be and this is already you know beginning to 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 be looked at procurement solutions and setting and there's tremendous research on this which is fascinating on the american side is setting uh, certain requirements, encadre, framing the type of technology that we procure for such sensitive purposes. And I think the time is ripe, if, for, if not for the former, then certainly for the latter. And I, I won't slip into the uh, EU proposal for AI liability, but now really concretely looking at, at holding entities responsible for procuring AI that results in very biased or other such damages. So I think the time is ripe, at least for a certain conditions. If we do want to go the route of, of prepackaged solutions, then certainly it might be worth turning our minds to what types of, of frameworks and precautions we would like 
rather than just wholesale dependence. So what kind of mm-hmm. precautions or framing we might want if we do go for a prepackaged solution, at least in the short and, and medium term. The need to safeguard sensitive data was highlighted as a recommendation in the report, in the No Turning Back report. Are you satisfied that the powers that be are taking that seriously enough as a, as a, as a question to be thinking about? It's definitely a question that that people are thinking about. That's clear, but it's not a box to be checked. Meaning, this is a long term struggle mm-hmm. uh, that we must grapple with. So, w- what what I want to see continued. So there there certainly is a an awareness, uh, but this is something that we must continue to look at and explore. Uh, we're far from having uh, understandably uh, finished our process of reflection on these issues. And we can see from the various initiatives, both in Canada, federally, provincially, and internationally, that there's kind of a reckoning with and an understanding that there is a flip side to the technology revolution, that technology isn't just something that happens to us, Mm -hmm. but that we must really mindfully understand what the ramifications are of these prepackaged solutions that are implemented or these really tempting and wonderful solutions. But just as law uh, regulates every hour is meant to regulate almost every aspect of human behavior, we're at a point in history now, as we kind of take stock after the pandemic, we're at a point where we're using a framework developed for the brick and mortar world where most of our interactions, including but not limited to justice, and our sensitive interactions, to use a term that comes up repeatedly in the new paradigm, a legal paradigm embodied by by the new EU initiatives, are uh, not in the brick and mortar world. You've probably had the same experience as I have for any type of mundane interaction where you get a pop-up that says your data is being collected in accordance with the law and legal requirements. And I always kind of can't help but laugh to myself. If you think of the federal protections, uh, PIPIDA, uh, we all agree, and this is why there's uh, changes in the works, that that uh, framework is is outdated. And that's why we have Bill C-27, obviously, and we have uh, ADA, and, and because we recognize that the law in place needs to be updated. So when we are told uh, in a very generic context, and in good faith, that our data is being collected in accordance with the law, uh, what does that mean, right? Uh, if the law is, I think, few right, would disagree where there may be disagreements on how to update it. I think everybody says, well, yeah, we do need to update it. So I don't know. So that- they, they, just, they, they just keep on asking me to update my opt-out options yeah. and over and over again. I mean, like I, I've answered this question so many times on the same sites. It's just, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, so that's that's actually a byproduct, and I could do a whole other po- podcast on on that of the. We of will. The <laughs> because because really, and and I'm kind of I tend to digress or monologue as my son says. So so we're at a point of inflection where the legal frameworks that we know, and this is you know a global issue, are being recrafted and and refreshingly so. But in the interim, to say that sensitive matters are being conducted in respect of the law when, and I you know, put that emphasis on the law, when the law itself is in flux, right, uh, can can be really problematic. So don't worry, we're conforming to the law. Meanwhile, the law, you know, everybody says we're, we're in the process of changing the law. So we have to understand that we're in this 
period of transition, this period of change, and therefore kind of act with the uh, requisite, not only caution, but awareness, because at the end of the day, and I'll, I'll end on this more generally, but certainly with courts, it's all about legitimacy and trust. So what you do uh, in very sensitive contexts in a situation where these norms are in flux can uh, have repercussions uh, later on uh, back to the the fallout point. Another thing I want to get to is that, you know, and I, th- I think one of the interesting things about, you know, beyond the technology itself, one of the interesting things about the, the pandemic and the sudden shift to virtual hearings is that, you know, we also saw the courts just drop a lot of old practices, probably coming to the conclusion that perhaps these were Vestiges of a different time, and that perhaps their utility was up for question at this point. And I wonder that now that again our courts are still inundated with case backlogs. You know, how are they looking? Are they drawing inspiration from other countries? Are they looking at data analytics at all? Are they thinking of using algorithms and AI to work through some of these issues and these processes that could really be streamlined? Maybe it's not streamlining them technologically. Maybe it's just eliminating steps in the process that are no longer necessary to deliver good justice to people. Are, are they, are they, is there any, is there any appetite for that in the justice system now? I think that one of the, the good things, you know, we, uh, that came out of this very difficult period was that it, it forced us to be more nimble and to abandon practices that seemed irreplaceable, right? So that that's that's a wonderful thing. And there certainly is appetite. And in terms of algorithms, I think they permeate every aspect of life and, and they do have their, their place. We have to recognize they're already here, right? And they do uh, have their place for eliminating a redundancy. And that's where I kind of revert to the thing fast, thing slow. Uh, we have to to go through this, this triage and think, you know, there are areas where a, a tremendous amount of discretion is not necessary. We don't have to have somebody mulling over and the algorithm can certainly assist us. And other areas where we have to be careful, and, and this is where, and I don't remember if we talked about this in, in the previous time, but if you think about something like the person's case, uh, you know, our women people, or even Brown versus Board, if you have too much streamlining, then these outlier cases will never be decided, right? And the law wouldn't advance. This is somewhere where, where you do need a lot of discretion, where you need the court to say, look, you know, this is how we decided things in the past, but we're going to go a different route because this would be unjust. And if you had an algorithm, the algorithm would be correct in saying, no, women are are not persons. This is not, you know, how it's been interpreted in the past and the algorithm would be perfectly correct. But you can't have that because then, of course, not to speak of social justice, but to put it in very mild terms, there's stagnation and marginalization of anybody who doesn't fit a certain mold. And that's an issue more generally with limiting chances for social advancement. Very often justice is a tool. And and we spoke about uh, my my interest was and still is the impact of technology on constitutional rights and democratic institutions. And when the charter, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms was entrenched, one of the main wonderful things that came out of it is that people felt they could go to the courts to advance their rights. And this was, you know, what was known as dialogue in the courts process. The idea that if you're a group that has been marginalized and you can't have political victories because you're in the minority, you can go to court and challenge that. If things are are overstandardized, then that becomes a problem. But again, you know, can things be overstandardized for small claims? Can things be overstandardized for traffic court? The dangers of that with the bemod of oversight are minimal. Do you want to standardize constitutional case law? That's a different 
story. But but is it is it is it necessarily a question of standardizing the, I guess the substantive case law? I mean, there has to be some sort of distinction between probably the substantive elements of the law, and I understand where bias ingrained bias and further ingrained bias but means of artificial intelligence or or algorithms is a danger to be avoided at the same time there's a procedural side to the things i suppose that sometimes they can overlap but we are thinking here about developing an approach to a more user friendly system of justice i guess the question it becomes then should the courts should our tribunals be be playing a bigger role in testing solutions in terms of making the whole process a little bit speedier, a little bit more efficient? And can they use data? Can they use analytics? Can they use algorithms for that purpose? Or should they be partnering with someone else to help them in that endeavor? Yeah. So so in terms of partnering, that's a really important component that you raise and, and partnering with civil society, partnering with community groups, certainly uh, members of, of traditionally marginalized groups, people from poverty, advocates. Uh, that's extremely important. And Balkan talks about the triangle uh, that I've mentioned in, in other contexts between corporate actors, community groups, and government. And that's kind of reminiscent. I keep mentioning the Industrial Revolution, but in the Industrial Revolution, that is what happened. If you look at the Civil Code of Quebec, there's a constant reference to couture and, and to the traditional practices of corporate actors at the time, if you will, less so for community groups, although that's very important at, at this you know, far more advanced democratic stage, one would hope. So partnerships are, are essential. In terms of making justice more user-friendly, absolutely. I think that has a lot to do with being nimble and a lot of the pomp and circumstance, if you will, deter people from accessing justice in certain cases. And so this is a wonderful contribution that technology can make. I think that the, the concern that, that I've been uh, referring to uh, when you look at comparative law and you look at certain jurisdictions that have embraced, and, and this is again, you know, when we started the podcast with going from one extreme to the other, certain courts um, that have embraced uh, technology and artificial intelligence wholesale in terms of decision-making have seen a side effect. Uh, Professor Ben Liebman of Columbia, his, his research points to that, of potentially de-skilling human judges where the human judges are given the task of oversight in order to ensure that the rule is properly applied because the, the technology will take the rule right and will apply it firmly. But the rule could be applied, and this is where my examples came from, in a manner that is overly rigid. So we're trying to make things more user-friendly, but we have to be careful in so doing not to get the opposite effect, which is extremely rigid, right? Technology can be rigid. Anyone who's ever, you know, done any coding, you put in the wrong, you know, I'd be terrible at it because I, I, I'm full of clerical errors. And you have one clerical error, the whole thing falls, right? So then you say, okay, don't worry, we have human oversight. And we always talk about human oversight as as the uh, four, the safety valve, but then the human kind of loses. And that's what we've seen in systems that that use a lot of artificial intelligence and justice and elsewhere, that the human is kind of afraid he, he or she loses agency. As I said, de-skilling because he's saying, well, if the algorithm said, this is how the rule is applied, deep in their hearts, we all have this lack of self-confidence. Who am I to know better? Right? Who am I to say? Um, and if the system, and this is the administrative side of, of implementing technology, if the judge is being monitored, for efficiency. And that's a consideration that I raised over a decade ago uh, in terms of separation of power. If the judge is being monitored for productivity, does he or she really want to take the time to question? We see this even now. It's like, well, on appeal, what'll happen? So that's just something that I want to flag. And flagging it doesn't mean 
you know, that we're rejecting technology, I think it comes back to, we're not here to say we adopted or rejected, just like with the industrial revolution, nobody said, you know, uh, we're going to keep making things by hand, although we've come to learn after decades of fast food that some slow food is also good. We've kind of learned to pick and choose. Um, and some of it that is is really going to be uh, this continuing flow and and struggle with reaching an equilibrium between these different considerations to ensure that justice matches our democratic value system. The thought of having judges undergo productivity monitoring is quite a scary one, I got to say. Yeah, I don't think anybody really wishes that upon the justice system or those who use it. Do we also have to just be thinking in terms of money and the funding that goes into the justice system? Because there is obviously pressure on courts to get through their backload, the backload of their case law, and there is pressure on them to deliver justice in a more efficient uh, way. And then there are obviously these concerns about overly rigid efficiencies in the justice system that you raise. How should the justice system be guided in applying resources to these problems? That's an excellent question, and that no one can abstract financial considerations that they that they are a consideration. But when it comes to democratic institutions, this is an important consideration. I think if we're mindful of what we said at the beginning, that technology is not a silver bullet. It depends how we frame technology. If we say, look, we can take a prepackaged commercial platform whose mission is understandably to make profit out of data and to better itself, to, to train its systems using data. And we take that and we take the algorithms that, that are proposed and we give it, we give those, we encourage the class of people that cannot afford lawyers to go online regardless of their disputes and kind of get it settled with. And then we pat ourselves on the back and say, we saved a whole lot of money uh, because this application was free and because all these disputes are entre guillemets, are solved and people all got their quote unquote day in court and were happy and there was no community consulting and then you end up with uh, allegations of bias and you end up with erosion of trust and you end up with data scraping and you end up with uh, cybersecurity, tremendous cybersecurity essential infrastructure being menaced. At the end, the bill will come in. So I, I think it's a short-term, long-term. So it would be naive to say you you should not, uh, that the finances are not, not, they're a tremendous issue. But then you have to look at whether the fix, what kind of savings the fix is engendering. And in some cases, you can certainly say, you know, this was a wonderful, and, and I mentioned, you know, BC, and I mentioned there's certain ODRs that we can really, con really congratulate ourselves and say, this is, this is working wonderfully, and people are satisfied, and, and, and this is nimble, and they, you know, cut through, they don't have to miss work, and, and people who are disabled don't have, and there's so many wonderful things uh, that we really can say, this is great, and this is not only money saving, but this is uh, fostering trust and nurturing trust. So this is a wonderful thing. And we've, we've, you know, killed two birds with one stone. But other matters, we just have to soberly reflect upon. And that's all that kind of in introducing this friction of reflection and saying, you know, a few years from now, will we have saved both money and the legitimacy of the system? Or will we have in, in an unintended way, and it's certainly in an unintentional way, just gotten carried away 
and shot ourselves in the foot through some unintended consequences. And this is a question, and this is not a question that has one answer. This is a question that has many answers. And this is a process of reflection that we've thankfully begun in an overdue manner, but but that we are we are certainly attending to and that we need to continue thinking about it. This is not an easy fix. There are a lot of appealing opportunities. This is an exciting time, and there are a lot of wonderful wow. opportunities that we can avail ourselves of, but avail ourselves of in a really thoughtful and sustainable manner. And one thing I'm curious about is in the No Turning Back report, there was a recommendation that we should be looking to the Hague Institute for Innovation of Law for innovative solutions to improve the justice system. Are there any examples that come to your mind of interesting solutions that have emerged from the Institute? I think they've been very concerned with communities and with everyday problems that are left behind, very basic disputes, uh, the, an acknowledgement that the courts are handling very sophisticated disputes, uh, whereas many people are, are left behind and that there are community solutions in deploying technology uh, and ensuring that they do reach uh, individuals. So I think that that's, that's been very important work that's been done, that's that's been explored. And I, I, I think, you know, if if we look at the UK, if we look at Australia, there's been a tremendous reflection on having this vision. I think in Australia, they use Cotter's model for change. And they look at, you know, the various steps that we can go through in ensuring that the digital transformation is done in a way that is inclusive. One of the trends that I've seen is and, and you were talking about about uh, budgeting, but hiring more technologists, getting technologists to come into courts, and and certainly uh, in terms of technological support, uh, that's that's a good thing. Uh, but I think again, you know, since since my role seems to be one of caution, we have to be uh, careful uh, not to replace the legal minds, right? Because law isn't just a technical process and not the community voices. So if we look at the funding, um, having, you know, uh, technology experts in there as support is tremendous, but having community advocates, as I've said, poverty advocates, having uh, judges and, and jurists kind of feel uh, empowered in terms of cybersecurity, right? Because cybersecurity is people mm-hmm. at the end of the day, having judges be empowered to use these new technological resources, I think that's a tremendous matter to be invested in. We don't want to be in a situation where judges kind of defer and say, well, let, I don't understand this stuff. Let the tech guy look at it because there's an overlap now between the technology and itself as we do use algorithms. There's no question we're using algorithms and we'll only continue to do more of it. You don't want judges in terms of their independence to be in a situation where they're saying, you know, I, I, that's, I can't do that. Let the tech people do it. Instead, you want them to be trained not to understand a particular form of technology. And I really like this quote about explainability with obscure technology. You don't need to know how the, the, what the technology is, but you do need to be able to explain to the people you're using it for how you're using it for them, right? So make sure that the judges understand how what the technology is being used to support them uh, rather than the intricacies of the technology itself. And that is really important for democracy to have uh, this empowered and educated a society, uh, not technically uh, literate, but understanding what role technology plays 
in the justice process. You're hearing more and more that you know in the medical sector and the health sector, they are hiring technologists to onboard research teams for you know curing cancer, cure, you know, or or finding yeah. treatments for multiple sclerosis, for example. And so they're participating in that in that research effort because uh, it can make the research go faster. It's, it's interesting. I got a final question for you, and I'm going to put you on the spot because you are a law professor. You know, since you've written this report, I'm wondering if you can grade somehow, like, or give me on a scale of one to 10, how far have Canada's courts come since the release of the report and how far have they got to go? I'm asking you to hand out a grade. Yeah, so I'll, I'll give that to my grading assistant. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I'll abdicate responsibility for, for an actual letter grade, given the discrepancy between institutions uh, and their grading scales. But, and, and I, you know, is it an advanced course? Is it an introductory course? But, but just in the side, I think the courts have, and plus it's, we didn't set it out in the syllabus. So where's the procedural justice? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Not even telling courts that they were graded, but but in 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 all seriousness, I think justice and courts have come such a long way in times of unbelievable stress and pressure and crisis to ensure that access is is continued, that it's extremely laudable. So that that is tremendous. And if you look at judicial education and just the events that I've participated in, and, and you know, I'm sure there are many others that that I have not that have dealt with the topics that we're broaching today. So just in one month, I had a panel on on AI and justice and, and another, actually in the same day, another on uh, just uh, video conferencing tools and the likes. So there's tremendous work uh, being done, uh, tremendous work uh, aimed at creating a vision, communicating the vision, and most importantly, making it stick. But because of this incredible period and i always you know use this from from a princeton colleague it's like meditating in times square the ground is shifting under our feet there's more work right so we've come such a long way words cannot do it justice but there's so much more to be done because of this period of incredible potentially unprecedented change that humanity generally is living uh, through and democratic institutions have a greater challenge than most of us mere mortals uh, because of the the tremendous trust and the sensitivity and sensitivity is a word that is recurrent in 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 most of the new uh, uh normative frameworks that's coming out the sensitivity of the data and their their uh, very unique role uh in fostering uh trust in, in in democracy and 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 you know as as justice barack said democracy uh must fight with one hand tied behind its back so courts have that additional challenge where they could otherwise say, you know, let's make our life easy and, and put these questions aside, but they don't. Uh, and they do uh, try to to uh, ensure that that the balance is, is met on a, on a daily basis, all while you know, dealing with 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 all the regular day jobs, so to speak. So uh, tremendous, tremendous uh, work being done uh, all around. Many thanks, Karen Eltis, for your time today. Appreciate the, the conversation. It's been a wonderful pleasure. Thank you so much. You can hear this podcast and others on our CBA podcast channel on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us if you can, subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes, and to hear some French, listen to our Droit Moderne podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends, colleagues, and if you have any comments, feedback, 
or suggestions of topics that you'd like to hear us discuss here, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at CBANATMAG and on Facebook. Also, check out our coverage of legal affairs at nationalmagazine.ca. And thank you all for listening to this episode of Modern Law. We'll catch you next time.